Professor Wiles, please accept our warm congratulations for having been selected as the Arbel Prize laureate in 2016. To be honest, the two of us, we expected that we would have had this interview already several years ago. You earned fame, not only among mathematicians, for, and now I cite, your stunning proof of Fermat's last theorem by way of the modularity conjecture for elliptic curves, opening a new era in number theory. This proof goes already back to 1994, which means that we and you had to wait for more than 20 years before it earned you the Abel Prize. Nevertheless, you are the youngest Abel laureate so far. In the time after you finished your proof of Fermat's last theorem, you had to undergo many interviews, I know, which makes our task quite difficult. How on earth are we to find questions that you haven't answered several times before? Well, we should try to do our very best. But nevertheless, in particular, in view of our spectators from Norwegian TV, we have to start at the very beginning. And that is, in fact, in Latin. So now I try to cite in Latin. Nullam in infinitum ultra quadratum potestatem in duos eustem nominis fast est dividea which means it is impossible to separate any power higher than the second into two like powers. And then he continues, cuius rei demonstrationem mirabilem sane detexi, hanc marginis exiguitas non caperet, which means I've discovered a truly marvelous proof of this, which this margin is too narrow to contain. So this remark was written by the French lawyer and amateur mathematician Pierre de Fermat in his copy of Diophantus Arithmetica somewhere in the 1630s. He certainly didn't suspect at the time that he would keep mathematicians, professionals and amateurs alike busy for centuries in trying to unearth the proof. So could you please give us a short account on some of the serious attempts towards proving Fermat's last theorem until you embarked on your journey? And why was such a simple-minded question so attractive? And why were attempts to answer it so productive in the development of number theory? So the first serious attempt to solve it was presumably by Fermat himself. But unfortunately, we know nothing about it uh, except for what he explained about his proof in the specific cases of n equals 3 and n equals 4, that he, he showed that you can't have the sum of two cubes being another cube or the sum of two fourth powers being a fourth power. So he did this by a beautiful method which he called infinite descent, uh, which is was a new idea, a new way of presenting mathematics anyway uh, in arithmetic. And he explained this proof several times to his colleagues in letters, um, and he wrote it also in the, the margin was big enough for some of it. Um, but then the, after this uh, was published by his son after his death, uh, it lay dormant for a while, uh, but was picked up by Euler and others later who tried to find this truly marvelous proof. Um, and they failed and it became quite dramatic in the early 19th century. The, 
people thought they could solve it. Um, there was some discussion, the French Academy and Cauchy jumped in and said he thought he could too and so on. Uh, but in fact, it transpired that the German mathematician Kummer had uh, actually written a couple of papers where he explained that the fundamental problem was what's known as the uh, fundamental uh, theorem of arithmetic. That is, in our normal number system, any number can be factorized in essentially one way. So you take the number like 12, it's 2 times 2 times 3. And there's no other way of breaking it up. But in the system of numbers that you want to use to try and solve this Fermat problem, you actually use systems of numbers where this doesn't hold. And every attempt that was made to, to do it uh, failed because of this failure of unique factorization. Coma analyzed this in incredible detail. Um, he came out with the most beautiful results. But the end product was that he could solve it for many, many cases. For example, less than n equals 100, he solved it for all numbers except 37, 59, and 67. Uh, but it didn't finally solve it. His method actually was the same that Fermat had tried, uh, the method of infinite descent, but in these new number systems. Well, these new number systems he was using spawned number theory, uh, algebraic number theory as we see it today. So it involved developing other number systems where you might try and solve equations instead of just solving it with ordinary integers or rational numbers. And attempts at Fermat carried on but somewhat petered out in the 20th century. No one came up with a fundamentally new idea. Until the second half of the 20th century, uh, number theory moved on, uh, considered other questions. And then in uh, 1985, Gerhard Frey, a German mathematician, came up with a stunning new idea where he took a hypothetical solution to the Fermat problem and rewrote it um, so that it made what's called an elliptic curve. And he showed, or she suggested, that this elliptic curve would have very peculiar properties. Um, and he conjectured that this, you couldn't really have such an elliptic curve. Well, uh, the American mathematician Kenneth Ribbit then actually demonstrated that using this Fry curve, that any solution to Fermat would contradict another well-known conjecture called the modularity conjecture. So this conjecture had been proposed in a weak form by Taniyama and refined by Shimura. Um, was first real evidence for it came from Andre Vey, who made it um, possible to check that new conjecture, the modularity conjecture, uh, in some detail. And a lot of evidence had been amassed showing that this modularity conjecture should certainly be true. So at that point, mathematicians could see, yes, Fermat is going to be true. And moreover, there has to be a proof of it. Because what had happened is that this modularity conjecture was not a problem that 
mathematics could just put to one side and go on for another 500 years. It was right, there was a roadblock right in the middle of mathematics. It was a very, very central problem. Whereas Fermat, you could just leave it aside and, and forget it almost forever. This, you could not forget it. So at that point, when I heard Rivet had done this, that moment I knew, okay, this problem can be solved and um, I'm going to try. Could, could I interject a little about the speculation about Fermat's proof, so-called proof? Yes. Do you think that he had the same idea as Lamé had the wrong, I mean, assuming that the, the cyclotomic, uh, you know, integers uh, have a unique factorization? No, I don't think so. Although the error might be in there somewhere. Um, it's very hard to understand. Andre Vey wrote about this because all the other problems he considered were to do with curves that were genus zero or genus one. And suddenly he's writing down a curve that's higher genus. How is he going to think about it? So I think when I was trying this myself, when I was a teenager, I, I, try, I put myself in Fermat's frame of mind, not because uh, there was anything else I could do. I just thought, his mathematics from the 17th century, I was capable of understanding. Later mathematics, probably not at that point. And it seemed to me that everything he did came down to something about quadratic forms. And I thought maybe that would be a way to try and think about it. And I, of course, I never succeeded. But there's nothing else that suggests he... he he fell into this trap with unique factorization. And in fact, from the point of view of quadratic forms, he understood sometimes there was unique factorization and sometimes there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So he understood that difference okay. in his own context. Yeah. So I think it's very unlikely that was the mistake. Yeah. Because, I mean, in the same book by André Vey that you mentioned, uh, Fermat had this uh, a cube minus a square equal to two has only... Um, has only uh, essentially one solution, namely x equal yes. to three and y equal to plus minus uh, five. Yes. And uh, I think that André Weiss speculates that uh, Fermat at that time looked at the uh, ring uh, z plus uh, z square root of two and yeah. used that unique factorization in that thing. So z root minus two, yes. Yeah, I yeah. Think yes. So, okay. Yes. He used the unique factorization, but the way he did it was in terms of quadratic forms. Okay. And I think he also looked at uh, quadratic forms uh, corresponding to z root minus six, where there's not unique factorization. So I think he understood. Uh, that was my impression at the time, okay. that he understood the difference. Okay. So we have already started on your personal mathematical education. I'm curious to know, I mean, you were apparently already interested in mathematical puzzles as a quite young boy. Uh, have you any thoughts about where this interest come came from? Is it family or as any other influence that you can pinpoint? Well, I, I just enjoyed mathematics when I was very young, but I, I, at the age of 10, I, I was evidently looking through library shelves devoted to mathematics, and I would pull out books, and then at one point I pulled out the book by E.T. Bell, which describes, uh, on the cover, describes this problem and the Volskell Prize and the romantic history of this problem, and I was completely captivated by it. 
Was there other things in that book that fascinated you, this book by Eric Temple Bell? Um, it's entirely about that one equation, really. And it's actually quite uh, wordy. So there is less mathematics in some sense than you might think. Yes. Um, so I think it was more the equation. But I, then when I found this equation, then I think I must have found other elementary books on number theory and um, learned about congruences and I see. solving congruences and so on and other things that Fermat did. And you did this sort of work besides of your ordinary school career? Yes, I don't think my schoolwork was too taxing from that point of view. Okay. So was it already clear for you at that time that you had an extraordinary mathematical talent? I think I had certainly a mathematical aptitude and, and obviously loved to do it, but I don't think I felt I was unique and I don't believe I was in that school. I think there were others who were, you know, had just a strong acclaim to be future mathematicians and, and some of them have become mathematicians. So. And it was already clear for you very early on that you would study mathematics and getting into a mathematical career? No, I don't, I don't think I really understood you could spend your life doing mathematics. I think that mm -hmm. only came later, mm -hmm. but certainly studying it as long as I could. I'm sure I, as far as my horizon was, it involved mathematics, yes. Mm -hmm. You then started to study mathematics as a student in Oxford mm -hmm. and back in 1971, is that right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked out? Were there any particular teachers, any particular areas that were particularly important for you? So before I went to college, actually in high school, one of my teachers had actually had a PhD in number theory and he gave me a copy of um, Hardy and Wright and I'd also found a copy of Davenport's Higher Arithmetic. And these two books I found very, very inspiring uh, in terms of number theory. So you were on track before you started to Yeah, study. I was on track before. Yeah. And in fact, to some extent, I felt college was a distraction because I had to do all these other things, <laughs> applied maths and logic and all mm. these things. And mm. I just wanted to do number theory. And you weren't allowed to do number theory in your first year. Mm. And you didn't really get down to it till your third year. So. Mm. But you were not interested in geometry as much as, uh, as in algebra or number theory? No, primarily in algebra and number theory. Um, I mean, I, I was happy to learn these other things, but, uh, but uh, I, I really was most excited about the number theory. Um, and so I, I think I, my teachers enabled me to take extra classes in number theory, but but there wasn't that much on offer. Um, I think at one point I even decided all the years of Latin I'd had to do at school, I should put it to good use and try to read some of Fermi in the original, but I decided that was actually, <laughs> that was too hard. Because <laughs> even if you've translated the Latin, the way they wrote in those days was, oh, yeah. wasn't in algebraic symbols very much, so yeah. it was quite difficult. Mm. Yes. So it must have been a relief when you then went to Cambridge to start studying really number theory with John Coates That's right. as your supervisor. So I went there, you had a year, preliminary year, in which you just studied a range of subjects. Um, and then I, I could do a special paper and 
uh, John Coates was not yet at Cambridge, but uh-huh. uh, I think he helped me, uh, or maybe over the summer after it, he, he uh, I, I met him and then I started working with him right away. And that was just wonderful. The, the transition from undergraduate work where you're just reading and studying, and the transition to research was that was the real break for me. Yeah. It was just wonderful. And John, John, it was John Coates, I assume, who initiated you to work really on elliptic curves. Absolutely. And yes. Iwasawa theory yes. and so on. He had some wonderful ideas and was generous to share them with me. And mm. you, you told John Coates that you were interested in the Fermat problem, I gather. I probably did, and he probably warned me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really true that there hadn't really been any new idea since the 19th century. Um, people were trying to refine the old methods. And yes, there were refinements, but it didn't look like the refinements and the solution were getting going to converge. It was just too hard that way. Right. But at that time, when you started working with John Coates, you had no idea that this elliptic curve should turn out to be really the crucial. No, it's... Um, a wonderful coincidence and, and the strange thing is that the two things in a way that are most prominent in Fermat and, you know, that we remember are his work on elliptic curves and this, I mean, for a number theorist. Because this equation you met, mentioned, y squared plus 2 equals x cubed, an elliptic curve. It's, right, right. It's, it's yeah. the yes. same thing. Could you spare a few seconds to explain what an elliptic curve is and how it is developed, the theory is developed by means of Iwasawa theory? Yeah, so for a number theorist, the life of elliptic curves started with Fermat as equations um, of the form uh, y squared equals a cubic in x. And the cubic in x would have rational coefficients. And then the problem is to find the rational solutions to such an equation. And Fermat, what Fermat noticed um, was, besides the kind of result you get uh, if you look at integer solutions, sometimes you can prove there are very few and sometimes even say exactly what they are. In contrast with rational solutions, you could sometimes start with one or even two and use them to generate infinitely many others. And yet sometimes, as actually, it's not obvious it is an elliptic curve, but the case n equals three of Fermat's last theorem is in fact an elliptic curve in disguise. Sometimes you could show there are no solutions. So you could have infinitely many and you could have none. So this was already apparent to Fermat. And um, so people studied these equations, and then at the turn of the 20th century, um, Poincaré actually uh, realized that you could um, uh, study these. Well, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. We should say in the early 19th century, one studied these equations um, in complex numbers. And then Arbel himself comes in at this point, uh, studying elliptic functions. And they were very well understood in terms of W periodic functions. 
in the early 19th century, but that's the complex solutions, solutions to the equation in complex numbers. The solutions to the equations in rational numbers um, were studied actually by Poincaré and uh, in um, uh, there was uh, what's now known as the Mordell-Vey group uh, was proved by uh, Mordell and then Vey in the early 20s that the uh, rational points on an elliptic curve form a finitely generated abelian group. That is, you, from Fermat's language, you could start with a finite number of solutions and using those generate all the solutions using what he called the chord and tangent process. So that, um, that group, okay, you now know the structure is a very beautiful algebraic structure, but that doesn't actually help you find the solutions. So no one really had any methods for finding the solutions, um, any good methods, until uh, the conjectures of the late uh, 50s, uh, which emerged from Birch and Swinton and Dyer. Yeah. So there are two ways of formulating it. Um, one is somewhat analytic, and one is in terms of what's called the Tate-Shafarevich group. Uh, but basically, the Tate-Shafarevich group gives you the obstruction to using to finding an algorithm for finding these solutions. And the birch swinnett and Dyer conjecture tells you there's actually an analytic method for analyzing this so-called Tate-Shafarevich group. Um, and if you combine all this together, ultimately, it should give you an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And you worked already on birch and swinnett and Dyer when you were a graduate student together with John Coates. Yes, that's exactly what... Uh, he proposed working on, and um, we got the first results in this analytic link um, between solutions and what's called the L-function of the elliptic curve in certain special families of elliptic curves. This was complex multiplication. Exactly. So these were the elliptic curves with complex multiplication. Was this really the first result uh, uh, concerning this uh, birch Swinnett and dyer conjecture? I think it was the first one that treated a family of cases rather than, than an individual case. Which were, there was a lot of numerical data on individual cases, but this was the first infinite family of... And this was all with the rational numbers, right? Yes. We should just mention that this conjecture, the Bergen Swinnett and Dyer conjecture, is one of the Millennium Clay Prize. Yes. Which, if somebody could solve it, would earn this somebody $1 million, right? That's right. I think it's appealing because partly because its roots are in Fermat, just like the Fermat problem. So it's another elementary to state problem um, concerned with equations of, in this case, very low degree, which we can't master and which Fermat initiated. So I think it's a very appealing problem. And do you think it's in reach somehow that we have the tools somehow that if somebody is daring enough, uh, or do we have another, have to wait another 300 years? <laughs> I don't suppose it's 300 years, but I'm afraid there are, I don't think it's the easiest of the millennium problems, so I, I think it's still, still we're lacking some things, uh, which, whether the tools are all 
here now? Um, they may be. I mean, that is always the problem with these really difficult problems. It may be that the tools simply aren't there. You know, I don't believe anyone in the 19th century could have solved Fermat, certainly not in the way it was eventually solved. It, there was just too big a gap in mathematical history. You, you have to wait another 100 years for the right pieces to be in place. Um, so you can never be quite sure with these problems whether they are accessible to your time. That's, in fact, what makes it so challenging. Um, it's, you've got the intuition for what can be done now and what can't be done now. You, you mentioned the Tate Shafarevich group. Yes. And uh, in that connection, the Selmer group mm -hmm. also pops up. And Selmer, of course, was a Norwegian mathematician. That's right, yes. And I think it was Castles that uh, named this uh, group that occurs, yes. the Selmer group. Could you say in a few words what the Selmer group, how it's related to? Is that yes. the technical? Um, it is technical, but on the other hand, I can probably say... So basically, the Selma group, what, you, what you're trying to do is to find the rational solutions on the elliptic curve. And the method is you take the uh, points on the elliptic curve, suppose you've got some, and you can, if you like, generate extensions from those. So when I say generate extensions, you can take roots of those points on the elliptic curve. Just like taking the nth root of five or the cube root of two, you can do the same thing on an elliptic curve. You can take uh, the nth root of a point, so all points that times n give you the point you started with. They generate certain extensions of the number field you start with, so of the number field Q. So you can put a lot of restrictions on those extensions. And the Selma group is basically the smallest set of extensions you can get putting on all the obvious restrictions. And so you've got the group of points. They generate some extensions. That's too big. You don't want all extensions. You cut that down as much as you can um, using local criteria, so using piadic numbers. You cut it down as much as you can, and that's called the Selma group. And the difference, essentially, between the group generated by the points and the Selma group is the tate shafarevich group. So the tate shafarevich group gives you the error term, if you like, in trying to get the points from the Selma group. I see, I see. But uh, Selmer's paper, he, he of course, uh, looked at the equation, the Diophantan equation, 3x cubed plus 4y cubed plus 5z cubed equal to 0. Mm -hmm. And he showed that it had no, uh, just a trivial solution in the integers. But yes. mod m, it had non-trivial solution for all m. Yes. And, uh, and well, is there, why did Castle call it, uh, I mean, in, in Selmer's yes, paper? Yes, there's quite a subtle relationship between these. So what happens is you're actually looking at one elliptic curve, um, which in this case, um, 
I, I've forgotten exactly which curve it comes out to be, but it would be equivalent to x cubed plus y cubed plus 60z cubed equals zero. And that's an elliptic curve. And the Teichafravich group involves, or, or involves looking at other ones like it. In other words, for example, 3x cubed plus 4y cubed plus 5z cubed equals zero, which is not technically an elliptic curve. It's a genus one curve, but it's not an elliptic curve precisely because it has no points. And the Tate-Shafrevich group, one other way of describing it is in terms of these curves that are genus one but don't have points. And um, by assembling these together, you can make the Tate-Shafrevich group and that's reflected in the Selma group. It's, it's too intricate to, to explain in words, but um, it's another point of view. I, I gave it in the more modern terminology in terms of extensions. Uh, the older terminology was in these, um, these twisted forms. Okay. Um, so what you proved in the very end is by now called, well, a, form, a special part of the modularity conjecture. In order to somehow try to explain it, one has to start with modular forms and how modular forms can be used to generate elliptic curves. Could you give us a short account on this topic? Elliptic curve we've described as an equation y squared equals x cubed plus ax plus b. Um, and the a and b were assuming to be rational numbers. So, as I said, at the beginning of the 19th century, you could describe the complex solutions to this. So you can actually describe these um, very, very nicely in terms of the Weierstrass p function, in terms of elliptic functions. But what we want is we want to actually find a completely different uniformization of this, which captures the fact that the a and b are rational numbers. So it's a, a parameterization just of the rational elliptic curves. And because it captures the fact that it's defined over the rationals, it gives you a much better hold on solutions over the rationals than the elliptic functions do, which somehow only sees, really sees the elliptic, fun the uh, complex structure. And the place it comes from are modular forms or modular curves. So to describe modular functions first, so we're used to functions which satisfy the relation uh, of being invariants under translation. Um, every time we write down a Fourier series, we have a function which is invariant under translation. Modular functions are ones which are invariant under the action of a much bigger group, usually a subgroup of SL2 of the integers, of SL2z. Uh, so you would ask for a function um, in one complex variable, usually on the upper half plane, which satisfies f of z, f of z, is the same as f of az plus b over cz plus d. Or more generally, is that times the power of cz plus d. So these are called modular functions, were extensively studied in the 19th century. And they hold the key to this arithmetic. Um, and the way they hold the key is uh, perhaps 
The simplest way to describe it is uh, because we have an action of SL2Z on the upper half plane by this action, Z goes to AZ plus B over CZ plus D, we can look at the quotient H mod this action and you can give that the structure of a curve. In fact, it's naturally got the structure of a curve over the rational numbers. If you take a subgroup of SL2Z, which is what's called a congruent subgroup, so it's defined by, say, the C value being divisible by N, then you call the curve a modular curve of level M. And the modularity conjecture asserts that every elliptic curve over the rationals is actually a quotient of one of these modular curves for some number n. Uh, so it gives you a pram, uh, uniformization of elliptic curves by these other entities, these modular curves, which on the face of it might seem you're losing because this is a higher genus curve, it's more complicated, but it actually has a lot more structure because it's a modulized space. And that's a very, very powerful tool. And that's a very powerful tool. Yeah. And you have function theory, you have a, a lot of tools for that. But did Taniyama, the young uh, Japanese mathematician that first sort of uh, conjecture or the suggested this thing, did he have this, uh, his, his conjecture was more vague, I guess? His was more vague. So he didn't pin it down to a, f a function invariant under the modular group. I forget exactly what he did. It was un invariant under some kind of group, but I forget exactly what kind of group he was predicting. Uh, but it wasn't as precise as that. I think it was originally in Japanese, so it probably wasn't uh, circulated as widely as it might have been. I, see. I think it was just notes after a conference uh, in Japanese. It was an incredibly audacious conjecture at the time, wasn't it? Apparently, yes. 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 <laughs> But then it caught, caught the attention of, I mean, you told part of the story of Gerhard Frey in particular, who then came up with a conjecture relating Fermat's last theorem with the modularity conjecture. Uh, Gerhard Frey showed that if you f take a solution to the Fermat problem, a to the p plus b to the p equals c to the p, you make an elliptic curve y squared is x, x minus a to the p, x plus b to the p, then the discriminant of that curve would end up being a perfect pth power. And if you think about what that means, if you assume the, uh, this modularity conjecture and you have to assume something slightly stronger as well, then it forces this elliptic curve actually to have the n that I spoke about equal to one. But H mod SL2Z is a curve of genus zero. It has no elliptic curve quotient, so there wasn't anything there. So that, in a sense, was the point of departure for your for your story, I mean, followed up, of course, by the, uh, by the work of Saren Ribbit, who made this yes. more clear. So may I shortly summarize the story that then follows. So it has been told by you many times. It was even on a BBC feature. 
So you had moved to the US, to the United States, first to Harvard and then to Princeton University, becoming a professor there. And when Ribbit's uh, uh, result was out, you, devoted, you started to devote all your research time to working on a real attempt to solve the modularity conjecture for semi-stable curves, if I understand it correctly. And then follow seven years of really hard work in isolation while you were working as a professor at Princeton University and while you were raising small kids. And then a proof seems to be accomplished by 1993 and your work culminates in a series of three talks at the Isaac Newton Institute in Cambridge back in England. And as a result, you are celebrated by your peer mathematicians and even the world press takes an interest in your results, which is, happens very rarely for a mathematical result. But then when your result is scrutinized by in total six referees for one of the very respected journals, it turns out there is a subtle gap in one of your arguments and you are sent back to your desk. And then it took 14 months of hard and frustrating and sometimes uh, really <laughs> hard work and a heroic fight in a sudden flash of insight you find out that you can combine some of your previous attempts with new results to somehow circumvent the problem that occurred. And uh, well, it turns out that this is just enough to prove, to prove what you really needed in order to get this part of the modularity conjecture that then encompassed Fermat's last theorem. What a relief that must have been. <laughs> so, uh, well, would you, like to give a few comments to the story and to some additions or? Uh, yes, so um, I, in my terms of my own work, I, when I became a professional mathematician, I worked with Coates, I realized I really had to stop working on Fermat because it was time consuming and I could see the last hundred years had done nothing. Um, and I saw others, even very distinguished mathematicians, had come to grief on it. Uh, but this revelation, uh, actually, when Fry came out with his result, I was a bit skeptical that the Sare part of the conjecture was going to be true. But um, when Rivet proved it, then I, okay, now this is it. Um, and it was, yeah, a, a long, hard struggle, but it was... Um, It's, in some sense, it's irresponsible to work on one problem uh, to the exclusion of everything else, but it is the way I, I tend to do things. And I did feel with this problem, whereas Fermat is very narrow. I mean, it's one equation uh, which, whose solution may or may not help with anything else the setting of the modularity conjecture was one of the big problems in, the, in number theory. And there was, you know, it was a great thing to work on anyway. So it just was a tremendous opportunity. Um, and I think when you're working on something like this, it takes many years to really build up the intuition um, to see what kinds of things you need, what kinds of things um, a solution will depend on. And just to see, 
It's almost like discarding everything that you, you can't use and that won't work um, until your mind is so focused that even making a mistake, you, you see, you've seen enough that you'll find another way to the end. Funnily enough, the, the mistaken argument, um, people have worked on that aspect of the argument and quite recently they've actually shown that you can produce arguments very like that. In fact, for every neighbouring case, it's the unique point that it doesn't seem to work for and there's no real explanation. So the same kind of argument I was trying to use using Euler systems and so on has been made to work in every surrounding case. It's, it's really extraordinary. Um, so no wonder that it escaped your attention in the first place. <laughs> you, you describe, I, I guess, uh, this uh, uh, quest for, for the proof of the modularity theorem that something like going into a, a mansion and uh, could you describe how, how, how it feels like? And to, uh, yes, I think, I think the, when you take on a problem where it's not, you're trying to remove some condition that somebody had on a theorem or you're trying to extend something. I started this off really in the dark. Um, I had no prior insights, how modularity conjecture might work or how you might approach it. I mean, one of the troubles with that problem, it's a little like the Riemann hypothesis, but uh, perhaps even more so with that one, is you didn't even know what branch of mathematics the answer was coming from. I mean, there are three ways of formulating the problem. One is geometric, one is arithmetic, and one is analytic. And there were analysts with whom I wouldn't understand their techniques at all who were trying to solve this problem. Um, so um, I, I think I was a little lucky because my natural instinct was to be arithmetic and I went straight for the arithmetic route, but I could have been wrong. I mean, you know, um, in some sense, the, the previous, the only known cases of this modularity conjecture are the cases of complex multiplication. And that proof is analytic, completely analytic. So um, I, partly out of necessity, I suppose, and partly because that's what I knew, so I could try it straight away. I went straight for an arithmetic approach. Mm. And um, I was, I found it very useful to think about it in the way that I'd been studying Iwasawa theory. So with John Coates, I'd uh, applied Iwasawa theory to elliptic curves, been his idea to, to use that. And then when I went to Harvard, I'd learned uh, about Mazur's work where he'd, um, he'd been studying the geometry of modular curves um, using a lot of the modern machinery. But there were certain ideas and techniques I could draw on from that mm -hmm. that I realized after a while I could actually use to make a beginning, some kind of entry into the problem. Um, 
Because before you started on the modularity theorem, you published a joint paper with Barry Maser. Yes. Main theorem Several of Kimasawa. Yes, for, exactly. In this case, you, you needed over the, the rationals, right? Uh, that was over the rationals. I did it with him, and then I'd worked myself on extending it to the case of the totally. So, so that turned out to be very, very useful when you then started with the. It did. It, it gave me a starting point. Um, uh, I, it wasn't obvious at the time, but when I thought about it for a while, I realized that there might be a way to start it there. And, and this result you extended to, to real fields, right? I mean, or. or yes, I'd already done that before. Okay. Well, Okay, let me be careful. So, I'd basically done the extension to totally reals, but when I started working on the modularity conjecture, I, I realized I was going to need some time and I wasn't going to be publishing very much. So, my publication process of these results on the Iwasawa theory slowed down somewhat, uh, covering my tracks a little bit. You covered your tracks so that people... So well, it wasn't to disguise it from other people. It was that I was, you know, I was supported by universities and you know, financing foundations that expected results, not okay. just okay. attempts. Uh, so if I'd published all my yeah, things yeah, at yeah. once. Yeah. Besides, I, I really... It was hard to distract myself from thinking about modularity to finish off uh, preparing these results for publication. So most of that work was, was already... I, I, I'm going to, to read you a quotation. Uh -huh. um, the ramparts are raised all around, but enclosed in its last redoubt, the problem defends itself desperately. Who will be the fortunate genius who will lead the assault upon it or force it to capitulate? It must be E.T. Bell, I suppose, is it? No, no, it's not. It is actually from Jean-Étienne Monticlat, uh -huh. uh, Histoire des Mathematiques. That's uh -huh. the first book in history of mathematics written in the 18th, late 18th century. Uh -huh. And it refers to the solvability or unsolvability of the oh, quintic okay. equation. Okay and uh, uh, the general quintic equation, yes. which of course Abel yes. proved uh, when yes. he was 21 years old, That's here right. in Oslo, here in mm -hmm. Oslo. And he worked in complete isolation as far as mathematical yes. things is concerned. In fact, this was Abel's obsession. I mean, he uh, really uh, delved yeah. into this and he also got a full start. He, has to, uh, he proved, thought he had proved that you could actually solve the quintic by radicals. Mm -hmm. and then he discovered his, uh, his mistake and he finally found the proof. Right. Well, this problem was almost 300 years old, very, very yes. famous. Well, if we now move fast forward 200 years, the same quotation could be used about the Fermat yes. problem, which was 350 years yes. old and which you solved. Um, I mean, it's a very parallel story in many ways. Do you have any comments on, on, on this? Um, yes, in, in some sense, I do feel that Arbel um, and then Galois were marking the transition in algebra from these equations which, um, which are solvable in some very simple way 
to equations which can't be solved by radical Sorin. But this is an algebraic break with the quintic. And in some ways, the, um, the whole trend in number theory now is the transition from uh, basically abelian, um, possibly solvable extensions to in insolvable extensions. How do we do the arithmetic of insolvable extensions? Now, the modularity conjecture, I believe it was solved because we'd moved on from this original abelian situation to a non-abelian situation. And we're developing tools, the modularity and so on, which are non-abelian tools. So it's the same transition in number theory that he was making in algebra. Uh, it's the same transition in number theory which, which provides the tools for solving this equation. So I think it is very parallel. Yes, it is a very, very ironic story because Abel, when he was 21 years old, he visited Copenhagen who, uh, to visit Professor Degen, who was the leading mathematician in, in Scandinavia at the time. And he, Abel writes a letter to his mentor in Oslo, Holmbo, where he had, writes down three theorems about the Fermat uh, theorem. I, one of them is not easy to prove, actually. Uh, he, he doesn't give any proof. And of course, that's just a parenthesis today, because I mean, that wouldn't lead anywhere. But in the same letter, he says that he's desperate. He cannot understand why he tries to solve, uh, to, to divide the, the Lemniscate uh, uh, arc in, 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 in equal pieces, and he gets an equation of degree n square, and he can't understand why n square should be only n, because there are only n points. And of course, that is uh, because you have the double, you know, yes. uh, periodicity. So when he get, got back to Oslo, he realized, and he, he sort of inverted and found the elliptic functions. And if you think about it, the thing that he did on the Fermat turned out to be completely, I mean, not uh, valuable, but the thing that he did on the elliptic functions turned out to be yes. the tool. Of course, Abel had no idea this was going yes. to have anything to do with the arithmetic. Yeah. So uh, this story sort of tells that mathematics develops in mysterious ways. It certainly does, yes. So based on your experience, could you describe a little bit this interplay that we were already discussing between this hard and perseverant work on your desk on the one side, on the other hand, sometimes sudden flashes of insight that come out in a more relaxed atmosphere and where it's difficult to see where they can come from, but making it clear that you must have worked unconsciously further on what you have been doing with your, with your pencil before. Yeah, I think what you do is you get to a situation where you know a theory so well and maybe there's more than one theory that you know so well and you've seen every angle you've tried lots of different routes and you can just see you know, connecting five dots if they're sort of five places away from each other you can't do if they're one dot away it's automatic and somehow you just have developed such an intuition um, and understand these objects so well that you can see where they have to fit together. And this final insight is not something you rationally think out. I mean, there's this 
tremendous amount of work in this preparatory stage where you have to understand all the details, maybe some examples, um, and then when you've developed all this, then you let the mind relax, and then at some point, maybe you go away and do something else for a little bit, you come back and suddenly it's all clear, why did you not do that? And this is something the, the mind has. I remember this, this, in a trivial example of this in non-mathematical terms, I remember once someone showed me some script and it was some kind of gothic script and I couldn't make head or tail of it and I was trying to understand a few letters and I gave up and then I came back half an hour later and I could read the whole thing and the mind somehow does this for you and we don't quite know how but we do know what you have to do to set up the conditions where it will happen. This uh, whole uh, thing we're discussing now reminds me about um, one story about Abu. He came to Berlin and he lived with some Norwegian friends who were not mathematicians. But one of his friends told that Abel would typically wake up during the night, light a candle and write down ideas that he woke up with. So, so I mean, apparently his mind was working. Yes. You know, yeah. I do that except I don't feel the need to write it down when I wake up with it because I know I won't forget it. But I'm terrified as if I have an idea and I'm about to go to sleep that I will not wake <laughs> up with that idea. So then I have to write it down. But. Okay. So at the end of the day, are you most of all thinking in formulas or geometric pictures? Or what is it you shape in your head? Yeah, it's not really geometric. I think, um, I think it's patterns and I think it's... Um, it's just parallels between situations I've seen elsewhere and the one I'm facing now, or just um, in a perfect world, what's it all pointing to? What, what are the ingredients that ought to go into this proof? What am I not using that I have? Sometimes it's just desperation. Um, I assemble every piece of evidence I have and that's all I've got and I've got to work with that and there's nothing else. I, I often feel that doing mathematics, it's like uh, you're a squirrel and you're being chased and there's these, or even that there's some, some nuts up the top of a very tall tree, but there are several trees, you don't know which one. And what you do, you run up one and then you think, oh no, it doesn't look good, this one. You go down, up another one. And, and you spend your whole life going up and down these trees, but you only go up to 30 feet. Now, if someone told you the rest of the trees, are, it's not up them. You've only got one tree left. You just keep going and you find it. So in some sense, it's ruling out the wrong things that is really crucial. Um, and if you just believe in your intuition and you stick with your one tree, you will find it. Uh, I uh, talking about more general thing in mathematics. Uh, there's a citation for, by uh, of uh, Felix Klein. He said that mathematics develops as old results are being understood and illuminated by new methods and insights. From this, new problems naturally arise. And Hilbert said something like, "Good problems are the lifeblood of mathematics." Do you subscribe to these 
things. I certainly agree with, with Hilbert, yes. Good problems of the lifeblood of mathematics. I think you can see in our century this, I mean, you know, for me, obviously, modularity conjecture, but the whole Langlands program, Birchman and Dyer conjecture, these problems give you a very clear focus on what we should try and achieve. Um, the, you know, the Vey conjectures on curves over finite, um, curves and then varieties over finite fields. These, these problems somehow concentrate the mind and also simplify our goals in mathematics. Otherwise, we can get very, very spread out and we're not sure what's a value, what's not a value. Do we have as good problems today as we had when Hilbert gave his I, I think so, yes. Okay. Um, I think the Riemann hypothesis is the single greatest problem um, that I understand. Um, and it's sometimes hard to think exactly why that is, but I do believe it. it's actually solving that will help solve some of these other problems. Um, And then, of course, I have a very personal attachment to the Birchman and Dyer conjecture. So. Of course, of course. It's sort of intuition can fail us. I mean, Hilbert thought that the Riemann hypothesis would be solved within his lifetime. And there was another problem he thought would never be solved in his yes. lifetime, which uh, yes. uh, Gelfont, you know, uh, some. So, so our intuition can be wrong, you know. That's right. I'm not surprised he felt that way. Uh, I mean, one does feel the Riemann hypothesis is such a such a clear statement, um, and we have the analogues in function fields, sort of understand why it's true there. We ought to be able to translate it. Um, of course, many people have tried and oh, failed. Yes. Oh, yes. But I, I would still myself expect it to be solved before the Birchman and Dyer conjecture. Are we interested in other sciences apart from mathematics? I'd say. Somewhat, but not, again, I'm not going to devote, these are things I do to relax, so I, I don't like them to be too, too close to mathematics. So if it's something like animal behavior or, um, or um, astrophysics or something from a qualitative point of view, yes, I, I certainly enjoy reading about those or about what machines are capable of, and sort of popular science. But I'm not going to spend my time learning details of, of string theory. Yeah, just, that would be too much. <laughs> I'm too focused to, to be willing to do that. Not that I wouldn't be interested, but I've just, this is my cho choice. I would like to thank you very much for this wonderful interview. And this is first of all on behalf of the two of us, but moreover also on behalf of the Norwegian, the Danish and the European Mathematical Society. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank very you. much.